Are you gay? Geeky? Just enjoy hearing your good Judy's dish about the latest in pop culture? Well, then you're in luck. The boys of Flame On are here for you. In every episode, we discuss the topics that entrance us. Whether it's comics, TV, movies, drag queens, or video games, we've got you covered. So, if you're ready for your gay and geeky slice of pop culture life, then sit back and get ready to Flame On! When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you troubled by stale podcasts in the middle of the night? Do you love films that feature the busting of spooks, specters, or ghosts? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Ghostbusters Resurrection is an RPG audio drama combining tabletop gaming and cinematic paranormal elimination adventures. Call the professionals at nerdyshow.com slash ghostbusters. We are ready to believe you. The following episode of Flame On is presented by the Nerdy Show Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdy Show programming is made possible by a comic shop. Orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination. And with the generous support of listeners like you. To learn how you can support this and other fine geeky programming, visit nerdyshow.com. My name's Brian. I'm with Flame On Podcast, and I have the very special pleasure today of uh, introducing, not that he needs any introduction, because I'm sure most of you know him already, uh, queer comics legend Andy Mangles. Welcome to Flame On, Andy. Hi. Thank you, Brian. Um, I've been flaming on for years, so. (laughs) Well, I mean, honestly, I, I feel so humble when I get to talk to people who have been working in queer comics for 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 a long time because right. you know you forever <laughs> <laughs> it, it certainly no it certainly feels like it. in a good way though um but no i i i i know there's so much legacy and history that precedes our current era of you know kind of amazing queer comics uh you know in the contemporary world both mainstream and independent so you know i'm always pleased and and tickled to get to talk about where we were till up till now and how we got here. Like that's so important. And I know Andy, that's important for you as well. Um, So today I wanted to bring you on, of course, to talk about the incredible loss, but also the incredible life of uh, Howie Cruz for our listeners and viewers who have not, you know, read stuck rubber baby, probably the one you would certainly have heard of, um, you know, one of the preeminent queer, uh, comics, semi-bio, uh, semi-autobio comics, uh, and then many, many other things. And I know you had the pleasure and privilege to sort of follow in his footsteps and and, and kind of carry on some of his legacy. So uh, uh, certainly, I want to talk about that, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about you know what you're up to, and uh, you know see how we do. And I know the windstorm is bad right now. I just had my plants get knocked over too. So uh, oh, 
well, yeah, yeah you're, in, you're in Washington, so you're you're getting it too. Yeah, it's uh, it's perilous. So hey, if anything goes weird, we're just gonna blame the wind. All right. <laughs> um, but you, yeah, let's. If you let's see start. a woman flying by behind me on a bicycle, you know. <laughs> oh my gosh, wouldn't that be fantastic? You know, I'm about to go somewhere else. <laughs> so uh, let's just start with uh, 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 gay comics itself, because I think that's, or a little bit before that, but I know uh, from reading some of the stuff you've written about Howard in your own career, like you encountered his work in gay comics, uh, comics with an X uh, at this point in the story, Correct. right? Yeah. Um, yeah you encountered that. And yeah, I'll let you talk about it. Well, back in the 1970s, underground comics, which is what independent comics were called at that point in time, uh, underground comics were generally the difference between underground comics and uh, and mainstream comics was often in the title first, so that so that uh, people knew to rack them differently. So comics with an X meant that it was an underground comic, and it generally kind of functioned like an R rating or something like that. Um, or even an X rating. They might have they might have sex in them. They might have most of them had drug references in them. They they would have political references and hippie references and you know that type of stuff because this was during the the main part of the counterculture revolution and so forth. And so this was happening all through the 1970s. And one of the main publishers of uh, in the, uh, of underground comics was Kitchen Sink Press, um, and Dennis Kitchen had had the idea partially because he had published some of uh, Howard's early work with Barefoot's comics, and and knew that Howard was at that point in time he was the only openly gay underground comic professional. Um, there were lesbian ones, uh, Roberta Gregory, Mary Wings, people like that, but there wasn't anybody in the, in, much less the mainstream, there was nobody in the underground world that was open about being gay except for Howard. And uh, so Dennis came to him and he said that, you know, I'd like to do, I think it's time uh, to do something that is, uh, you know, a gay comic book, but I don't know how to put it together because Dennis wasn't gay. And, and he said, would you work with, work with me to put together a, a gay anthology of queer cartoonists? And he didn't use the word queer because queer wasn't, you know, in common practice back then. But, uh, and so in 1980, uh, the first issue of gay comics came out in September, 1980. And, um, it was really, uh, you know, a strange thing. Howard, you can find interviews with Howard on online um, where he talks more about, you know, the genesis of what he had to do. But he had to, uh, <laughs> he had to find other gay and lesbian cartoonists because even he didn't know that many, and uh, and some heterosexual cartoonists and some bisexual cartoonists and some bisexual cartoonists who weren't out and basically say, hey, would you contribute something to this to this comic? And uh, Gay Comics 1, which uh, this is the, it's in a bag, so I'm going to try and show it without the cover, cover glistening. There we go. Oh, wow. Look at that. 
you know, it's got a it's got a guy in a closet looking at a, a, a semi naked street trade guy eating a hot dog, saying "gas choke," uh, which was a very um, EC comics, you know, the horror comics at that time had a lot of the gasp, choke, ag, you know. Um, and so it was kind of a, an, an inside joke to comics itself. And that cover is actually by, by Rand Holmes, who was quite the darling of the underground comic scene. He did a comic called Harold Head. And um, Rand at that time wasn't out as being bisexual. He was out as being bisexual later in his life, but uh, agreed to do the cover because Howard asked and because he wanted to be part of it. But, um, you know, it, it was interesting that this this hyper queer cover was drawn by somebody that, as far as everybody knew, was heterosexual. <laughs> um and uh, so that came out in 1980 and actually had a few printings. I don't know which printing I first saw, but I was 13 or 14 at the time. Now, this is 1980, which is not, that's 40 years ago. Uh, if we think about uh, the history of the comic book scene, uh, Batman and Superman just hit 80 years. So in terms of comic books themselves, the main body of comic book work is around 80 years old. And so the first time that there was ever uh, the, the gay comics was published was half that time period ago. So we've actually come quite a, quite a ways, you know, since 1980, but at that point in time, it was, it was so completely foreign to everybody. <clears throat> I was 13 or 14, uh, and we would take trips down to California, and um, there was a comic book store in Long Beach. I think it was Heidi Ho Comics, and um, they had a special rack of underground comics that was set up kind of to the side, and I remember I, was, I went there looking. I was quite excited because I think it was my first time possibly in a comic book store at all. Uh, I was oh. from Montana, and we didn't <laughs> we didn't have them back then. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, I I was quite excited because I was looking at the superhero comics, and you know, calling to me out out of the corner of my eye were these was this this cover, you know, and um, and I remember being shocked and astonished that there was something that said the word gay on the cover that was a comic book. It was, uh, you know, mind-blowing. And because there were adults around and other people around, I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could really look at the comic, much less buy it, but I, like, grabbed it, stuck it in the middle of another comic and just kind of looked through it really quickly um, just to kind of absorb the fact that, that there were, actual gay comic books that there were that there were people like me who were doing comics and you know as a young 13 14 year old um it was it was mind-boggling and so I, I i always owe that to howard that that and and i'm sure i'm not uh, i'm not even one of of hundreds i'm one of thousands of people who had that same experience because of howard's work I think I first saw gay comics 
and this would have been, you know, much, much, much later because I I was in uh, high school in the early '90s, and the comic shops in Florida, where I'm from, no underground anything. I mean, we're talking <laughs> Image and all the craziness, you know. Um, but it was when I went up to DC for a work trip. I went to Lambda Rising, uh, which is I'm sure you're familiar. It's a it's a ador- adorable gay bookstore, no longer there. Uh, right. But for years, it was a stalwart, like, you know, gay gathering place in D.C. Uh, in the DuPont Circle area. And I remember seeing, like, I believe I saw probably one of the last issues because they had a lot of stuff that had been sitting, you know, sitting in the spinner racks. I mean, they had quite a, a thing uh, there. Uh, and then some other ones, of course, more recent stuff like Prism and um, uh, Class Comics and all that stuff. But. Um, I, I definitely did not get a good deep dive into this until <laughs> way late in my life to my not credit, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I, I'm, yeah, Howard like like lit the way right for all of us. I, I did post a link to the, uh, comics beat interview with Howard in the chat. Right. So, um, you know, one of, I'm sure many, many interviews he's done, uh, over the years about his work. So if anyone's interested, there's a link there. Um, but yeah, so you, you, you first encountered that. In, in California, and then you you're, you got involved in comics. You know, a few years later, I think. Uh, what was your first uh, like comics gig or work that sort of got you to that point, or, or how did you break into that uh, field? It wasn't very long after that that I I actually you know I mean it was only a couple of years before I got my first my first gig. Um, I was in a, a Teen Titan fan club um nowadays we'd call it a you know a, a facebook group or something like that or an email group or a bulletin board uh if you're old enough to know what a bulletin board is but back then they were called APAs, amateur publishing associations and um what that was was you would write or draw something and then you would send it into a central mailer. There was usually 50 members or 30 members or however many, you know, but you, 50 was usually the most. And so you would you would write or draw something, copy it 50 times, send those into the central mailer. He would then collate one of everybody's contributions into a big, thick, you know, 200, 300 page phone book sized issue, wow. and then mail that out to all 50 members. And then the next time there was a deadline, you would write about what other people had done the previous issue, or you would write or draw something new yourself and send it back out. So I was in a a Teen Titans, one of those, and I was firmly in the closet at that point, although um, a lot of people could see that, that there were elements of me that were both peeking out and in that kind of homo fright stage that you get usually right before you come out where you're like, Oh no, 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 no. Oh, this homosexuality, it offends me. I, you know, and, and then usually it's only a short time after that, that you just kind of like burst out of the closet. It's Uh, funny you talk about that because I was revisiting (laughs) stuck rubber baby. Right. And there's the scene where the main character sort of, again, the auto bio semi auto bio, uh, character in that uh, that that is Howard, effectively uh, having those moments about oh no, I'm at this gay bar, but I just I'm just here for the music. Right, right, right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, it's it's an interesting part of the development process. Um, so uh, in this Teen Titans app was uh, Rob Liefeld, 
um, also a teenager, and Hank Knaltz. Wow. And um, who's now a vice president up at DC. And, you know, several other people who've gone on to have careers in the comic book field who are all Teen Titans fans, like I was. And um, Rob and Hank and another member suggested that I contact Fanagraphics about a new book they were putting together called Focus on George Perez. And because I was kind of like the guy everyone went to with questions about George, I knew everything about George's career. And um, so I contacted them and that ended up being my first published writing that was in the fall of 1985. Mm. So only like two years after I had seen gay comics for the first time, I was actually part of the comic industry. And I started writing regularly for Amazing Heroes magazine, which was their bi-weekly news magazine. Uh, the equivalent now would be um, Back Issue magazine is probably the closest to what Amazing Heroes was at the time. Um, it very much uh, created with fanboy love and, not, and, and created to celebrate comics, not to celebrate the value of comics. The, the, the monetary value of comics and not to, not to celebrate the toys coming from comics or something like that. It was all about the love of comics. And I was writing regularly for Amazing Heroes magazine. And then in 1987, I came out, uh, tax day, 1987. I, I blew up the closet. <laughs> All my friends, you didn't come out of the You blew it up. There was, there was no shred. There was shrapnel everywhere, but there was no shred of a closet. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, at that point in time, I started really looking into the fact uh, and, and the question of what did it mean to be gay in the comic industry? And, and kind of all I had to look to was gay comics. There was very little, there was nobody out in the mainstream world. There was the handful of issues of gay comics. Um, and I, I had the sense because I worked at the Pegasus comic shops in Portland, Oregon, and those were owned by dark, what is now dark horse comics. And it was a very, uh, men's man, you know, uh, it, it, it was, uh, my direct boss was very homophobic, but the, but the institution around this chain of comic book stores and, and the beginning of Dark Horse Comics was definitely not friendly to a, a gay, to a gay creator. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I, I didn't know what that meant um, towards, you know, the start of my career and what would, what would that mean? And um, so I asked Amazing Heroes, can I write an article about, gay characters and see if there's any gay creators who will come out of the closet. And so I wrote this two-part article in 1988 uh, called Out of the Closet Into the Comics. Um, and it was, you know, almost 40 pages long, I think, in the mag in two issues of the magazine. And there's a link to that. If you go to my website or you if you want to put it up, Brian, there's a link to the to a PDF of that article. 
um, at andymangles.com. If you click on the gay gay comic button, um, there will be a link to that. Um, but uh, that was really kind of the first time I'd interviewed Howard. We had talked on the phone. He had given me advice. And uh, he contributed this wonderful illustration that ran at the, the, the start of the article that was um, Batman, Ms. Tree, who was a, uh, a female detective at the time, Extraño, who was starring in Millennium and who was this very Nelly uh, Latin American queen at DC Comics, and uh, somebody else. I forget who the fourth one was. And then Wendell was popping out of their TV screen, and they were all discussing the pros and cons of whether or not they could come out. And... Um, it was interesting in that article, not other than Howard and Robert Tripto, Robert was the second editor on gay comics, other than Howard and Robert, nobody would come out of the closet in the comic industry. Yeah, there you go. That's that's the cover of it. Uh, Which is a Howard Cruz cover, correct? That, that yeah, yeah. I mean, not cover, it's a, the illustration. Or illustration, sorry, yeah. Yeah, um, and... Uh, Oh, they have Maggie Sawyer was the other one that was there. She was in the Superman comics. And, um, you know, of those four characters, Extraño, uh, the one there that looks kind of like Liberace, um, was the only one that was actually an out character. Um, as it turned out, the two on the other couch, Batman and Ms. Tree, were not canonically queer ever. <laughs> but... The, the, you know, the fans would discuss that as theories, of course, even today. Um, but, uh, but as far as the comic, um, the, 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 the comic industry itself, nobody uh, would come out. And so all the interviews that I did, um, you know, nowadays you hear the anonymous sources, <laughs> you know, when when you're talking about politics, but uh, you know, as if we haven't had anonymous sources about politics back to Watergate, but um, you know, everybody who spoke to me for the article was anonymous and would not come out. And at the end of the article, I came out, and I was thus the first openly gay mainstream comic professional, somebody who was working in superhero comics and um, color comics and and mainstream comics, stuff that you would have seen at, at the store that you went to. Yeah, so actually, uh, this just blows my mind because now I have this through line from Rich Johnson all the way back to you. <laughs> <laughs> Which well, is great. I mean, I don't, I have no issues with what Rich does because I see it absolutely for what it is, which is right. off the record. It's a part of every journalist's uh, toolkit. So, uh, you know, you get it wrong sometimes or things change, but I know that you, uh, you were able to put a, a lovely piece up on bleeding cool for, uh, Howard, uh, you know, after mm -hmm. he passed away. So, you know, they, they've been, I, I would hope you agree. I don't know. It, they've been nothing but uh, kind to supporters of queer, you know, comics and, 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 and the history of comics. Yeah. Over the almost, years. almost always, uh, bleeding cool has been supportive of the, of the queer comic movement. Um, it's been interesting as someone who's been in it all the way along, you know, 
Uh, I mean, this is a, everything we've been talking about is so far pre-internet that that you know the majority of the articles I was writing were typed on a on a, a typewriter, not on a computer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, computers computers at that point they existed, but but. I didn't have them. I just yeah. got rid of my Selectrics. Uh, I had this old brown <laughs> IBM Selectrics from back when I was a kid. And I, when I, I moved out here, I had to get rid of it. I think I kept my the, the main, the typewriter that I, that I wrote my early stuff on just because it's the, it's the type of thing that writers do. They, you know, they have their pencil that they first did or their first typewriter or whatever, oh, you yeah. know? Um, but, uh, uh, when that article came out, nobody knew what was going to happen. It was it, it, this had never been discussed in public before. Uh, it came out in the summer of '88, and I was terrified as to what that would mean to my career. And so, I had lots of conversations with Howard about what was the right thing to do uh, politically. Uh, what was the right thing to do uh, personally? how this would affect my career, what would happen if it destroyed my career, you know, all these questions. And he didn't have any, he didn't have a lot of answers for sure because his career arc had been very different. Uh, And he was a cartoonist. He was somebody who drew as well as wrote, whereas I was just a writer, Mm -hmm. uh, as as some people put it, just a writer. Um, but, uh, But Howard was always, always, Every time I would call him, he was so polite and so knowledgeable and so he cared and he would listen and he would, he, he really wanted the best for his community. And that was something that he kept through his, his whole life. Uh, and whether you're talking about the, the, the gay community um, or whether you're talking about where he lived and his husband was a politician and his his local community and so forth, he was always someone who, um, you know, I would say his empathy was, I don't know, gaming terms, but whatever the, the highest level oh. <laughs> of, of, you know, power that you can have, he, he had Thanos-level empathy. Oh, wow. You know, he was he was an amazing person, and um, and and I listened to everything he told me because I knew it was coming from a place of of caring and love and truth and non judgment, and uh, it was kind of like the the gay uncle that you that you wished you had. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, I love it. Well, like that's so important in our community to have those older figures who are supportive, who give us some of the history that we didn't have before, who help us make better judgments. And what's really remarkable, and and I'm so happy to hear about all this, because, you know, in the comics industry right now, I know we have some less than amazing stories of uh, mentorship gone totally inappropriate. uh, Right. You know, like... Heterosexual. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, there's so much in our community that is is obviously sexual, but also there's just so many beautiful stories like yours and, and Howard's, where this person had nothing to gain by helping you, except that they just saw in you, Howard saw in you, someone like you know a kindred spirit, and wanted to just help 
provide that perspective. And that's just so touching. I love hearing this. Yeah, it was uh, it was kind of amazing. And I saw him do it over and over and over for anybody who would contact him. And, and um, you know, and I have so many creators who, who would contact me because I eventually became the editor of Gay Comics myself. I was the third editor of Gay Comics. And uh, um, I had so many people contact me and say, you know, is it possible? Could could you arrange? Could you you know? And they would. I I knew what they were asking was to talk to Howard Cruz, and and he was definitely, um, you know, the I don't want to say godfather. He was the grandfather of of all of us, and um, and it was it was an interesting. And an interesting thing that happened over the years, because as Howard got older, and uh, and I, you know, continued to do the activism that I did, um, where I was not only editing gay comics, but I also uh, that same year in 1988, I did the first gays and comics panel at San Diego Comic Con, um, which was an enormous success. Largely, I think, because everybody went there not knowing what they were going to. Are we going to see, like, live sex on stage? Is there going to be people throwing bottles at it? You know, what's going to happen? <laughs> Comics panel. You know, is there going to be drag? Is there going to be, oh, my God, you know. Um, but we, we're now this year, virtually, we have to have it virtually this year. But this is our 33rd year. It's the oldest now, the oldest, longest-running uh, comic book panel in history. Uh, we're actually going to uh, go to Guinness Book of World Records um, and and get that codified. You yeah, know? that's so, awesome. So, um, and Howard was on it more than once. <laughs> well, but, and I oh, we actually uh, we shared and uh, we got to you know participate. Well, participate. We got to watch your your tribute panel this year for Howard too, which was a. Uh, you know, again, very touching. And I, I, yeah, you absolutely should get like this uh, notoriety, I guess is the wrong term, but if Guinness will give you a thing, I think that's fantastic. And I don't, I don't think people realize uh, the continuity there, which is so impressive. Right. Right. And it all came from Howard, from, from Howard's decision. I mean, I, I give Kid, Dennis Kitchen a lot of credit too, because he was a straight guy that said, Hey, let's do this gay comic. But it all came from Howard's decision to be the first person, first gay man who was out, uh, and to be, and when when Dennis Kitchen came calling to you know to say, okay, yeah, let's do this. Um, that's not to say that if if Dennis had gone to Roberta Gregory or Mary Wings, that they might not have also done the same thing. But Howard was the one he went to, and and you know, and so Howard really gets that. He gets that initial credit. Um, but, you know, the steps I took following that, establishing the Gays and Comics panel, starting uh, out in comics, which then became Prism Comics. And uh, if you haven't been to prismcomics.org, that's Prism like the thing that shoots a rainbow out of it, not Prism like jail bars. <laughs> um but, uh, but uh, you know, I, I was one of the founders of Prism Comics, and 
you know, and PRISM does a queer press grant every year and they help support uh, LGBTQI creators and comics and, and so forth. All these things kind of sprang out of not only Howard's decisions, but Howard's support of me and his advice to me every time I went to him and said, hey, I'm thinking of doing this. Hey, I'm thinking of doing that. What do you think? What can I do to make it better? How can we, how can we make this all work? And um, he didn't like to be thought of as the, the, he preferred actually godfather to grandfather. <laughs> but, but then everyone started calling him the elder statesman. And uh, there you go. There's there's some prison comics in. Well, and I was going to say you're 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 not giving yourself enough credit. I know that you are instrumental, and I have personally been blessed with getting your uh, guide to San Diego uh, in 2017. I was there doing a, a different queer comics panel with a uh, Josh Yale from IGN, and mm-hmm. I was like, I, "What else is there? I need to know. This is my only time that I know of. I'll be here." And uh, this was invaluable. So uh, yeah, this is great. I'm glad you do this. Thank you. Well, actually, and again, if you go to to my webpage in the gay comic section, I think I have all of the past. Oh, uh, cool. PDFs. Yeah. Is they're all posted there. And if they aren't all posted there, they will be. Um, I've been I've been uh, gathering them all to uh, to archive and to make, you know, for historical purposes, if people want to see this, you know what? And, and it's interesting to watch over the years um, this year. I had Noel Stevenson, who just produced She-Ra, on uh, on the panel, and uh, you know Noel's Noel's quite the star now, <laughs> and um, but I think it was six years ago or five years ago she wasn't. She was the girlfriend of the person who I had put on the panel that year. And there you go. There's one of the past gay agendas, um, which is always a nightmare to put together. I'll tell you, I spent a lot of time on that. And then uh, Ted or Zan or whoever lays it out has to like make do with all this information I give to them. Um, But anyhow, back to Noel, she had uh, uh, at, at, at one point, I, I was looking back at my emails to get her email to contact her for this year. And I remembered, yeah, I remember I had an, an email exchange with her. Let's let's search my emails for that. And what I found was her girlfriend saying, <laughs> you know, my, my girlfriend is an independent cartoonist who doesn't have a lot of credits yet. Can you make sure that she gets a badge for this year? <laughs> that was Noelle Stevenson. Now she's producing She-Ra and you know she's this she she's now a Hollywood producer and right. a comic book star, and um, you know it's it's amazing sometimes how how we don't know what when when we're putting this work out there as we go along year by year by year we don't know who that's going to inspire or how it's going to touch their lives, what it's going to mean to them you know etc. Howard didn't know. And I didn't know. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, well, I love, um, uh, I know Howard in one of his comics, I think it was in Barefoots, the one about death that you referenced in the Bleeding Cool uh, piece, mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, says something to the, that, that effect. Like, you know, 
not necessarily like aware of all of the stories of his that will, you know, make people laugh. And, and like, like it's, it's really, it's a writer's dilemma when they don't just know all of the, the import that they're having for all of their readers and, and people who experience their work. And then on top of that, like you're saying, setting that, like paving that path, in in comics for gay lesbian trans non-binary and everyone that's come along like he 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 had to just sort of go you know i'm i'm pleased but you just you just don't know you never can appreciate all that that it means right Uh, right. but i'm glad during his life like you know from what you know i know he got a lot of great recognition about his work most of it came after stuck rubber baby you know i mean that was it was frustrating that it took that long for people to recognize what a genius he was yeah but uh stuck rubber baby was really a breakthrough for him so this is the cover from the the newest edition edition of stuck rubber baby yeah with a great opening by uh allison bechtel did a fantastic uh piece to sort of set the stage for this yeah Right, right. And and Howard and, and Allison are definitely the two, you know, kind of people people would look at those as the, the Mount Rushmore of, of queer cartooning, you know. <laughs> um and and rightfully so. I mean both of them have done some some uh astonishing work. Um but but Howard Howard his work was well liked and his and and nobody could could fault his talent but he didn't have anything that was long enough to to be a real breakthrough piece for him until stuck stuck rubber baby uh you know most of his stories were six to eight page stories or something like that uh even as his collections were were full of a lot of of you know one to two page stories and then you put 70 of those together and you have a book um it was yes he wrote continuing characters and yes he wrote continuing stories but it was harder to um it it was it was harder to like just sit down and sink into here's what howard cruz means uh until stuck rubber baby came out which was a, a a long narrative and and that was actually very similar with Alison Bechdel, that uh, she had done Dykes to watch out for for you know seventeen eighteen years something like that, and and there were all these collections of that, and yet she didn't have a breakthrough uh, to the public until there was something that was a a thick book that they could sit down and read start to finish without it feeling episodic, and so forth. Um, and that was really kind of what the breakthrough was. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting in the publishing world because uh, my 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 boyfriend is a, uh, a writer and has done a lot of short stories. But uh, from everything that you see in the publishing world, and, and comics are sort of a weird exception to this, the short story or the done in ones, like they don't they don't they don't make your name. It's not until you have that first series or that first long form work that you start to see that uh notoriety or or and i right. guess yeah it's just pe- you would think with the short attention spans that our culture has that one and dones and short stories would be like everybody's favorite right like singles right but that's not how it is it's so interesting no, yeah. no it's uh, it's 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 a little frustrating uh for those people who want to make this their career 
that you've got to get something regular um, or you or you aren't going to be considered for more work. Um, you know, my career is full of all sorts of, you know, fill-in issues and four issues here and two issues there and six issues there and so forth. And it doesn't matter that I wrote... Uh, you know, like the, the the last big comic I wrote was Wonder Woman meets the Bionic, Wonder Woman seventy seven meets the Bionic Woman, and it outsold two thirds of DC Comics line, and it was wow. published by Dynamite with DC. Mm-hmm. So it was the top selling Dynamite book and outsold two thirds of DC Comics line during its six issue run, but it wasn't enough that anybody at Dynamite or DC said, well, let's give them a regular series. <laughs> because it was just, here was this six-issue project that everyone knew was a love letter from me. And so they didn't, they didn't uh, editorially, they didn't take it seriously as a, well, if he can do this here, then he could, you know, then he might be able to do this here. Or, you right. know. Um, and so if you can't do it with six ish, a best-selling six-issue series, then how can you expect to do it with a, with a one-issue fill-in or a two-issue fill-in or something like that? And so you can write the best, uh, the best stuff. I did this uh, story once with Phil Jimenez that ran in Justice League International Quarterly, which was just as doggy a dog title as you could get at that point. <laughs> But the story was, um, it's an issue 17 of Justice League International Quarterly, if if anyone wants to track it down. Not only is it drawn by Phil Jimenez, um, it it has scenes from Angels in America in it. Oh, my gosh. Uh, uh, It's a sequel to the most famous two New Teen Titans issues, the Runaways issues. Uh, It's a direct sequel to those. And... Um, I've got to say that it's stellar writing. <laughs> you know, we know the art stellar because it's Phil Jimenez, but but I, you know, I really knocked. I went every. I put everything I had to knock that one out of the park. But it was in the final issue of a dog title, and yeah. so so now it functions as a sample that I can give to editors. You know, they're like, but this is twenty years old. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but it's still really good. <laughs> Good comics is good comics, you know. Uh, you know, but but no, but nobody editorially looks at that and says, "Hey, this person obviously if they can write this uh, twenty years ago, then they can, you know, they they can write this for me now." Um, that hasn't been the case in my in my book career, uh, you know, where where I co-wrote thirteen Star Trek novels and three three Roswell books and X Files and Iron Man and Star Wars and you know. Uh, had three bestsellers uh, in my book career, um, but it, it it's a weird thing in comics where they don't like equate. If you have success over here, then you can have a success over here, then you can have mm-hmm. success over there. You know, they don't they don't think that way. They're like, oh, he can write Wonder Woman and Bionic Woman, so that's yeah. all right. It's and this it's weird like. like- typecasting almost it's like the the genre actors and actresses get typecast and then they, right. they can't do out work outside of it so did with howard um 
Howard's career, did he try at any point or care to even try to get like mainstream comics work? Where it was just like, no, I've got my own gigs. I know he was in television and advertising and did all this other illustration work. Was he just happy to have like his own independent sort of uh, series with Wendell and, or, I mean, or was he interested in trying to do, you know, more? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. With that. It's, it's a, that's, a, that's a really intriguing question. <laughs> um, I, I have a quote. If you go back to that Bleeding Cool article, I actually quoted Howard. Uh, from my uh, from my interview, where he's talking about how controversial cartoonists don't get hired uh, for commercial work quite as much, and uh, and that was the reason that most of the creators wouldn't come out at that point in time. There's still one of the uh, one of the anonymous creators from that 1988 article who said, "If I come out, they won't let me draw Batman or Captain America or the Punisher anymore." all of them being titles that he worked on and he's still not out. You know, this is, <laughs> we're now in 2020 and, you know, and that person still isn't out uh, because they're scared that they won't get that work. And um, Howard, Howard wasn't pursuing that. If there had been a little Lulu revival, then, then Howard would have been beating down the door to work on that. And they would have been stupid not to hire him. You know, um, but uh, but Howard didn't want to do Superman. If they had said, "Hey, would you do a pinup for the you know the Superman 80th anniversary?" <laughs> number one, it would have been the most fantastic pinup. But number two, they they wouldn't even think to ask. You know, they're like, "Well, yeah. if we cartoonists will go to Sergio Aragones or uh, Scott Shaw or somebody like that." Um, We'll get Kyle Baker to do it. Yeah, uh, you know they well, wouldn't think. Oh, let's get Howard Cruz to do it. So Howard's style was so, uh, and I know he had a couple styles uh, as I was, you know, reading and sort of seeing examples. So, like, let's talk about that because, like, there is and there sort of was even back then, like this independent sort of style that cartoonists would come in and really make their their name with their style like you know R Crumb and you know and Howard right. and many others and like i think mainstream comics it, it, it took I, I remember marvel did this interesting anthology series called uh strange tales mm-hmm. and they probably had something pre- previous to that but this was where you know i, I kind of became more and they 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 really tried to get 
outside of the mainstream perspectives on Marvel Comics. Oh, you're and talking about the new Strange Tales that they did. The new one, yeah. Now, yeah, I don't yeah, know, yeah. did the original one have that at all or no? no I don't no, know. The original one was where Doctor Strange came from. Right, exactly. Yeah, so this is the, this was, so they re revamped that title, but in a weird, in a better right. way, I think. Right. Um, but you just don't see that very often. You don't see the mainstream comics trying to bring those voices in. Like you said, they want someone who they already know or has done the work that they can say, oh, yes, that works for our image. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's I. so I'm glad. I mean, I guess I'm kind of glad. I don't know. I mean, Howard had such a unique voice that I would have loved to have seen his take on certain mainstream properties. I think that would have been interesting to say the least. But, you know. If if he wasn't something he was uh, that passionate about anyway, then you know there I, you go. I think if if he had been asked to work on some of those type of titles, he probably would have been fine with it. He would have been like, "Sure, I'll do an eight page Fantastic Four story, or I'll do a you know I'll do a pinup or something like that." I I, I think he probably would have been tickled to, to do that, but for the most part, because he wasn't hot. At the time they were doing those projects, for the most part, people just didn't ask. Yeah. Um, but that didn't mean Howard was, you know, hurting for work all the time because he did a lot of, um, he did a lot of advertising illustration and so forth. I was looking through some old uh, gay magazines from the '90s the other day and came across a chiropractor ad with, with you know, Howard's artwork, and I was kind of like, oh. Well, hello. That's I didn't know about that. You know? I didn't know about the tops uh, art that he did. Uh, was it the, well, the art? No. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. I had no idea. I used to collect baseball cards, and even if I had seen his work, I wouldn't have you know connected the dots. Right. 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 Yeah. Like those rappers that you would read the the little Bazooka Joe comics. He did. He did those, and uh, um, you know, for people who were fans of fan magazines back in the 80s, um, Starlog and Fangoria and so forth. He was the art director on those, and he had illustrations in almost every issue. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I kind of found funny was that um, they had David Gerald writing for them because he was big-time Star Trek writer, and Howard Cruz would illustrate David Gerald's column in Starlog magazine, um, and that was before many, many years before David Gerald actually came out of the closet. So now looking back at it and you go, well, okay, you've got a gay cartoonist illustrating the gay columnist's work. <laughs> you know, uh, it was kind of interesting. He had his own column too called Loose Screws. Um, there was a pun of loose screws, like you use a screwdriver on. Got but it. it Loose and then his last name, so Loose Cruz. Uh, and he had his own, which I thought was just a that was a brilliant pun. Um, and uh, he, you know, he did a lot of work in in and around the field. He did uh, a couple Broadway posters, he did program books. Um, you know, he, he did a wide variety of stuff because the outside world would look at his work and think, oh, this is accessible and cute uh, and and fun. And it didn't make them it didn't make them feel angsty. And 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 a lot of cartoonists, a lot of comic creators now, if they try and do work in the mainstream, uh, the mainstream advertising 
place or something like that, they're often asked to tone their work down, to not put as many lines in. They can't draw, draw everybody grimacing all the time. Um, you know, the, the body proportions have to be more normalized. And, you know, for Howard, he, he, he just would automatically draw things that were, that were more realistic. I love thumbing through thumbing through this new collection and just, and seeing the or the the new the new uh, the reprint like stuff that is so fascinating and detailed um, that you just don't see even in even in comics you know underground comics or or, or modern art like he does so much with his line work that it's it's really impressive and you think about then how. I mean, if you've never held a copy of this in your hand, it's a thick book. It is it is a long, long uh, and, and amazing uh, collection. So like seeing that much work go into this, like it's no wonder that this is so well regarded and held such uh, in such high regard because it's so it's so uh, complete as a work for him. Right. Um, right. And well, and, you know, if you look at that page that you put up as a, for instance, um, the all the texture that you're seeing there from the shadows behind him, the texture on his hand, the texture on the little running boy's pants, all of that was done by hand. Every single dot was put there by him with a pen. None of it was Zipatone. Um, kids, they don't even know what Zipatone is. Um, now it's just a Photoshop layer. Well, right, uh, yeah. It's, it's Photoshop. None of it was a Photoshop layer. None of it was Zipatone, which, which was an old plastic film that would have patterns on it that you would put down like a sticker over the artwork. Um, this was all literally every single dot on that page and every single line on that page was all done by hand. Uh, which is one of the things that took him so long to do that book. I mean, that was it was like a five, six year process to 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 do that book. Yeah, uh, and much less as a cartoonist, he is someone who writes a lot of dialogue and 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 material, and then and draws a lot. But I mean, it's 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 so much, it's so much, and so detailed visually and in the prose and in the dialogue that like I I don't think I have experienced as 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 deep a work as stuck rubber baby in, in many other comics that I've read. It's, it's, it's daunting for some, I think, because I know younger readers, they want more show, not tell, but mm -hmm. at the same time, like just getting like this perspective and, and we haven't even, we haven't got to this part, which is like, I really hope because I know you're in Portland right. and I'm in Seattle, home of the chop or, or formerly <laughs> home of the chop. And this work the stuck rubber baby pre presciently and, and accurately like conveys the culture war that we have been in for years and decades and has so much more relevance in this current, like last few months than it has since probably the era that it happened, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, you know, if, if you've never read the book and you read it now, you would think, wait a minute, you know, the, the, um, it's kind of like those those people who are watching uh, the new Watchmen TV show or Lovecraft Country and finding out about you know the different riots that went on uh, over um, 
the you know the the inequalities that African Americans faced, or the sundowner laws, or things like that. Um, Tulsa, the, Black Wall Street, uh, right, 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 all, all of that. that. Yes, they're getting exposed to now because of television, um, because you know we weren't taught them in school. Uh, we were we, we were taught very little about African American history in school, much less about the inequalities that people faced. Um, and and Stuck Rubber Baby really is a lot about that, about growing up in the South in the middle of all this, and and what what it meant and how how people developed and and so forth. And uh, I feel like there there are very few books, comics that I feel every single person should have in their library. Um, and if I were to win the lottery, there are certain of them that I would just buy up millions of copies of, and I would literally, you know, have people hand them out on the street corner like Bibles because I, yep. I think they're that important. And Stuck Rubber Baby is one of those books. I think it should sit right next to March um, and Mouse, uh, among you know others of many, many other fun home, but but specifically on the topics we're talking about. I think I, I just actually finished March uh, not that long ago. I had started it a while back, and then you know put it down, and then I'll get to it. And then of course John, uh, you know he died, and we're all like, oh, I, I need to pick that back up. And and it's just again, it, it's oddly synchronous how the timing of that all works uh and then this re-release of stuck rubber baby and just like you're saying it, it absolutely captures in a very honest and so this is the stuck rubber baby uh, it's it's honest it's not uh glamorous like no. the main character does not have necessarily uh, a hero's journey of sorts. He he has a journey of his own, and he he definitely goes through a, a, an interesting you know story. But he's not necessarily at first, and even throughout a lot of it, like actively engaged in the the, the protests and actively right. engaged. He's kind of along for the ride and sort of figuring it out. Like you know, he has this wonderful girlfriend uh, Ginger who helps like bring him into these worlds that he otherwise probably would never have been in. Right. Um, and then meeting all these characters and, and the minister and the, the minister's wife. And anyway, so much that is so earnest and interesting and honest uh, about this movement. And, 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 and again, drawn from his real experiences growing up in the South. Yes. Yeah. Um, a lot of the book is autobiographical. And if it didn't happen to him, it happened to, you know, to friends of his. By the way, I have to apologize. Any sounds you hear are from the windstorm that we're experiencing. It's getting they're, bad, isn't it? They're making my shutters sound like fireworks in the background there. <clears throat> yeah, it's uh, not bad. The, uh, the, you know, the interesting thing you were talking there about the journey that the character's on, and which was also the journey that Howard was on, is something that... Um, those of us who've been in this fight for a long time uh, have evolved as as the fight has evolved. And um, although your beard is a little grayer than mine, I know that you're young, much younger than me. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little bit, a little bit, but I'm getting there. I'm catching up. <laughs> um, but the 
the uh, what what's what's going on in today's society, and I'm and I'm not just saying the you know the the current presidential situation, but our society in general today, with um, you know, when we elected our first African-American president, when the Me Too movement happened, you know, all these things that are now starting to uh, come about largely because we are sharing our lives in, a, in ways that we never did before. You know, Facebook and Twitter and so forth are, are windows into my life and your life and everybody who's on their lives that we never had before. You know, it's not just, uh, hey, I'll write you a letter or, hey, I'll give you a phone call or something like that. You're getting daily updates on what people are eating and what people's emotions are and what people are experiencing and what people bought. And, you know, I mean, it's it's like we're all living together in a sense. And as as we have faced this, um, this... Uh, expansion of no privacy, um, we've had to look at how does our society adapt? Um, how does our, how, how do we adapt in ways that um, are respectful or not respectful of each other? And what am I going to demand out of that? What am I going to accept? And uh, you know, a lot of people are are now saying, "I won't accept this any longer. I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to demand equality. I'm going to demand rights. I'm going to demand this." And we have ways in which to. It's not just about a few voices anymore. It's it's a mass of voices. Back in the '90s, when you know, me and members of ACT UP or uh, Queer Nation or Quack was, was an organ group. Uh, I don't even remember what Quack meant. It was queer something. That wasn't the queer academics one, was it? Uh, no, no, no. It was it was like an offshoot of Queer Nation, but it was okay. a, it was Portland spe- or organ specific because okay. we had the organ duck, so it was Quack. But um, uh, you know, we would we would do die-ins outside the Oregonian or we would protest at the state Capitol. And, you know, and there might be 20 or 40 or 60 people there. And we would, we would count that as a huge success because, you know, we'd gotten that many people together and our voices were heard. And now like, can you imagine any protest with 60 people at it getting, you know, like like nobody would even even slow the car down. They would just think that that was a barbecue. You know, um, it's 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 astonishing the ways in which the global community has become empowered, and the voices now become amplified because of that. And it used to be when you were in the publishing field. They would say, if you get one letter about something, if you get a letter to the editor uh, or a letter to the comic and it complains about X thing, it used to be you get one letter that equals a thousand people who feel the same thing. So if you got 10 letters complaining about something, you damn well better fix that right away. 
You know, if you got one letter, you could say, ah, oh, that's a fringe group or that's a, that's a group of people. Um, but, you know, if you got 10 letters, then you knew that was a big deal. Now, because every specific voice is speaking out on Twitter and, and Facebook and, and Instagram and, you know, all these other things, and because every single voice is speaking out, now they're actually looking at that as individual voices now. They don't say there's 3,000 protesters out here. That represents 30,000 people. They say that represents 3,000 people because those 30,000 people, if they wanted to protest, are either going to be doing it on Facebook or, you know, they're going to be writing letters or giving money or whatever. We're a much more involved society in everybody's business. Yeah. Uh, and for better and worse, because yeah, like you're yeah. saying, it, it mixes it up a lot more than it has historically, you know, ever. Uh, and uh, these blow ups, these situations that we have are so well documented and, and shared. Um, right. I was watching, actually, I was watching your hometown or your city uh, have some of those recent eruptions uh, in real time. Which is yeah, amazing. Yeah, we had helicopters over our over our place a couple nights ago. That was that was the closest it's come to our uh, to our home. Uh, I'm in an apartment, um, but uh, the the closest it came was the you know their helicopters that I guess were responding to something within like a 40 block radius, and um, you know it's. Uh, there's there's a lot of people standing up and saying we we need to be heard and we need to be acknowledged and we need to be we need to be treated in uh, humane ways and so forth and and there are also a lot of people that that lack any concept of empathy and this is what I think the problem is the big divide is there are people who are who are normal people and then there are people who lack empathy. Yes. And it's not that they're bad people. It's not that they're they have a different political view. It's that they they lack empathy. They lack the ability to understand or empathize with another person's position. Yes. And those can be on both sides. Yeah. Uh, of, of of any argument. The the people who can't understand or can't put themselves in the positions of someone else. Um, it's not playing devil's advocate to understand someone's position. It's being intelligent. It's being informed and it's being humane. Right. It's uh, giving people the benefit of the doubt that there are these real problems because I, I fully, I, I agree with you hundred percent. I talk about this a lot. Uh, the reason that the current leadership is so bad among other reasons is the just profound lack of empathy and the mm -hmm. complete discounting of the fact that there are absolutely valid problems in policing and in our society that has enabled this to go on for so long. And the moment that you other it and say, well, that's, you know, that's not real or that's, you know, that's not my problem. Or you just, you turn that switch off is the moment that you do just completely blow up the conversation and then nothing good can come of that. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I, I fear what you're saying and it's, it's absolutely true. Uh, it's, and it's, it's, really... something that, it's something that Howard covers in Stuck Rubber Baby yes. a lot. Um, and you know, in his, uh, recounting of what that history was like. Now, a big difference is nowadays we would be watching 
if if the events Howard talks about in Stuckover Baby were now, we would be watching 30-second clips of them on an iPhone video on, you know, on Facebook Live or on the news or something like that. Um, everything would be documented and we would be understanding it and seeing it in six different views from multiple, you know, phone camp phone cameras and there would be reporters talking about it and so forth. But that wasn't what was happening in the 50s and 60s. There was the records and and the narrative about our history was controlled by certain people. And if those people didn't want to didn't want the historical narrative to talk about the, the black riots, if they didn't want the if they didn't want sundown or laws to be talked about, if they didn't want police uh, brutality and and the the um, involvement of you know southern police organizations with the Ku Klux Klan, if they didn't want that talked about, it wasn't talked about. And if it wasn't talked about, and it wasn't written about, and it wasn't uh, put down historically, then it didn't exist as far as most people were concerned. And so one of the things that Howard does in Stuck Rubber Baby is document that element of history that uh, um, is important for us to remember. And, and, and actually, you know, it's interesting with gay comics as a whole. Um, I'm going to hold these two up here just real quickly. So this was the first issue of gay there we are. That's the first issue of Gay Comics, which was Howard's first issue. And then this is the final issue of Gay Comics, which was, uh, there we go, uh, which was my, that's issue 25, and it was the last issue of Gay Comics. Um, what's interesting about the, the, the journey of that series is that um, there's so many stories in there that are both of their time and yet they're completely timeless because they're talking about uh, human human emotions. They're talking about people's lives and feelings. There, you know, there is a lot more human. It's not about superheroes, although there are su some superheroes in there. But it's about the humanity that that uh, each of us experiences as a as a queer creator or you know in some cases as a straight creator identifying within the queer community um the uh the 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 history of gay comics i think will come down eventually as as one of the most important political um elements of the 80s and 90s um in the comic book world um, there's a lot of important things that happen in the comic book world, but very little politically that kind of made a big difference. And then, then you had Mouse come out, and then you had March and Truck Rubber Baby and Fun Home, and um, you know some of the some of the benefit books that have come out and so forth. Um, and those make a difference, um, but they also chronicle a time that isn't being in general isn't being chronicled in any other, in any other fashion. Yeah, and it's so like you said it's such a unique perspective and we don't get in other other media until more recently like you said with Watchmen, you know, we got to see viscerally the Tulsa 
uh, horribleness. And, uh, you know, I, it's funny growing up, I had this weird perspective on civil rights because I was from Florida, which is predominantly Southern, even though it's, you know, South right. Florida, so it's a weird mix of North and South, but you know, uh, my family is from Alabama. So like their perspective is sort of warped on it too. So, I mean, between them and my schooling, which was like, you know, not uh, progressive <laughs> to say the least, like I didn't get this, this information and we just saw, Oh, civil rights. Yay. Black people now are treated equal. Okay, great. There's no problems. We're all good. And without these moments like stuck rubber baby and, uh, and March and other books, like we're not getting the, the true story. So I'm, I am thrilled that Howard did this. And again, it's a very honest perspective. It's he is a white cisgender man stumbling his way into this. So it's not <laughs> glamorous. It's not John Lewis who is founding the movement and, you know, doing the rallies. It's not that it's a lovely compliment to that. Cause it's this poor white guy trying to figure out his, his shit. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting that you would say that because as far as the comic book industry is concerned, um, Howard Cruz is our John Lewis. Um, he is the person without whom queer cartooning would not have developed in the way that it did. And um, I, I get a lot of people who this is this is an awkward thing to talk about, but I I, I get a lot of people who who are appreciative and thank me for all the things that I've done to, to help uh, queer creators over the years. Um, and, and a lot of people who have no clue all the, all the things that I've done to help queer creators over the years. But I do get a lot of people who, who uh, represent that. And um, while acknowledging them and thanking them, um, I'm also always aware and always telling them, well, Howard Cruz did that for me. And and without Howard Cruz, none of us would be in the in this situation. You know, without Howard's support, I don't know that I could have written the article I did in 1988. Uh, I don't know that I would have come out in 1988. I don't know that the first Gays and Comics panel would have come out. Um, after that, Howard was there every time I called with a you know, I'm you know I'm. I'm thinking of doing this. So what do you think about that? Or I have, I have the, this DC comics editor is, is, you know, clearly homophobic. How should I deal with it? Mm. This is happening here. This is happening here. This is happening here. How do I deal with it? And I would go to him in, in a mentor way, in a mentor mentee way. And, and basically say, what do I do about this situation that will be, good for me as a human and also good for our community mm. um, because Howard at his core cared about other people as much as he cared about himself. Mm. And that's something that um, it's one of the few things that I will say growing up Mormon is, is an attitude that, that, uh, that I picked up from the Mormon church is to care about your community as much as you care about yourself. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's one of the few things that, that I think that I'm glad that I picked up for Mormonism. Um, but uh, Howard was very much that way as well. And, um, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's a, he, he was always, aw shucks, you know, uh, appreciative when anybody would 
would compliment him or thank him for the work he had done or things like that. Um, but but privately, he was also kind of like amazed that all this had happened, you know, and to, to see all these changes. And um, uh, to have Howard, who was, you know, a, a passionate advocate for, for queer people, have passed away last year. And... Um, John uh, bring bring uh, from March. Oh, Lewis. John Lewis, Lewis. thank you. Yeah. My brain just went, where? Um, you know, to have John Lewis pass away this year and to have, um, you know, to lose two voices that, that intersected politics and humanity and civil rights and queer rights and black rights and... Um, the real world and, and our comic book world. To have all that intersect and to lose two of those pioneers within one year, and especially within a time when we are perhaps at the worst state that our country's ever been, mm-hmm. um, it's... It's heavy. It's a lot. It's, it, it is. It is. And... Um, what I would say to people is don't lose sight of their work. Um, that's the best way to, to honor them. If you haven't read um, Howard's, Howard's work, go read it. Not just Duck Rubber Baby, but Dancing Naked with the Angels and, and uh, the complete Howard Cruz and Barefoots and you know so forth. Go out there and read it. Um, it's amazing work. Just because those people are no longer with us does not mean that their work has no validity or value. Um, It just means that they aren't making any more work. So it makes the work they they have done that much more precious and special. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of why I'm even doing this to begin with, because I really want the younger readers, people who are, you know, coming into comics even recently with sort of the rise of queer representation and the growth of that in in the various, you know, comics and related uh, media, like they don't know about this and they really should because it's relevant to them now uh, and their, their lives now, in addition to just knowing their history. So I I think that's an excellent point. And Andy, I really, I don't want to take too much of your time. I know, it's getting crazy out there. I've been looking out the window like, oh, God. <laughs> like I have these pine trees that are like starting. To- <laughs> right, right, right. But I do want to have you back because you have got so many great stories and so many life experiences and works that I want to, I want to talk about Wonder Woman because my my history with that is is complicated. My well, I don't ex- think you think I know anything about Wonder Woman. Oh, <laughs> let me just real quick. I got two things for you and then we got to we got to we got to split. Uh, Bill Zanowitz from my other show, Comic Book Bears, had a very important question for you about Wonder Woman, and I told him I would I would ask you this. So, and he couldn't make it because he's doing other uh, he's doing other stuff. But basically, he asked. Uh, hold on, I'm pulling it up. Um, I hope I know the answer. If not, you better edit this. I know we're live. You can't edit it out. Well, it's okay if you don't know the answer because this is this is pretty in depth here. But he he said you would be the person if uh, anybody knows the answer. It's you. <laughs> uh, 
What is the record number of spin transformations oh. in a single episode of Wonder Woman? What is the most that they have done? <laughs> you know, the um, the answer, I believe, is, is three. <laughs> and I think they did it in a couple of episodes. Uh, somebody asked me this recently online as well and i and i was i was working and i couldn't go look it up and you know so forth but i believe the answer is three um and i believe they did it in three different episodes okay um so uh i <laughs> i feel I, like you're right because i watched this not 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 lot recently but i do remember this more vividly mm-hmm. and there was that one where it was like oh my god she's doing it again yeah again yeah, yeah. Yeah, and well, and then you've got things like the uh, the deadly dolphin. I think where she's the where she spins twice uh, yes. into Wonder Woman and then into a diving suit. Yep. yep. So that's kind of that's two spins right there. Two spins, you're right. And in fact, that episode might have four spins in it. Although I think she, I think the third time she spins into Wonder Woman, she stays Wonder Woman the rest of the episode. Um, so. The uh, so I think the I think the answer would be three, and I, I believe Deadly Dolphin is one of the episodes that has three in it. Um, and well, what some of the others are, she only does. Yeah, yeah, it's funny because even in the movies, the 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 the, the longer episodes, um, I don't think there's more than I don't think there's more than three. They just have her as Wonder Woman longer. So what we should do then, when when you have when we have you back to talk Wonder Woman seventy seven and and Bionic Woman, which I love because I was a I watched both shows growing up and uh, the two the the marriage of those two properties was was ha- handed to the right minister if you know what I mean because it, it you you do it justice and I am actually going to be sending it to a few of my friends who are Wonder Woman like nuts from right. the Linda Carter era but also you know current. Uh, but what we should do is when you come back, we we'll talk about this. We'll, we'll do some research and we'll figure it out. And we'll, okay. we'll, we'll okay. stay yeah, I, I can do that for you. Now, what I just want to say about that, by the way, for those people who haven't picked up the book yet or who want to pick up extra copies, I just found out last week from the publisher, from Dynamite directly, that the book is not going to have a second printing ever. And they're down to less than 500 copies total. Oh, my gosh of the book and then it will be out of print forever. Is the, uh, did they say why? It's it's a licensing thing because, okay. because I figured. it's co-published by Dynamite and DC and it's Universal owning Bionic Woman and the associated uh, stuff and DC owning the Wonder Woman stuff and the associated stuff and the actresses involved and you know so forth. It's that project was a Ooh, that there was a lot that went into making that project happen. Oh, I, I really love I love hearing stories like that. So I'm definitely going to have you. That's like the first thing we're going to talk about. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. When I have you back, because that's I am so interested. I really do want to know more about your your time working with different properties too, because that's all that's always a fraught and nightmarish, you know. Journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 Eddie, thank you so much. I okay. really appreciate you helping shed light on Howard's career because. You know, I felt like you were the right person to go to for this, um, you know, this journey. And uh, I hope all of our readers and readers, listeners, viewers, whatever, whatever you are, go uh, check out the new Stuck Rubber Baby reprint. And like you said, all of his other work that's available. I know that there's some work on getting gay comics collected, but, uh, you know. We were going to try to 
get that for next summer. Howard, Robert Tripto, and I were all we're, we are working on getting a complete gay comics put together as a two volume omnibus edition. Uh, and um, uh, because of COVID, you know, I mean, everything went to hell, and now, now we don't know what's going to happen. So uh, I, I think you will, it, as long as publishing is still around, and as long as comic publishing is still around, know that there is work that's been done on getting a complete gay comics omnibus um, out there. And, and I am pretty hopeful that it'll be within the next two years. That's awesome. And if there's any any reason or whatever to do crowdfunding for that, please let me know because we will broadcast the crap out of it. But anyway, thank you so much, Andy. I really appreciate your time. And uh, andymangles.com. I'll put the link up on our, our different streams so they can find that link. Just make um, spell it correctly because if you spell it incorrectly, it doesn't go to me. M Ang Angels. I, I think that's an yeah. uh, easy one. Andy with a Y and then M Angels. Yep, yep, it's angels with an M. That's what I always say. People are like, angels? No, no, that's not what I said. <laughs> but yeah, no, thanks again so much. I really appreciate your Thank time you, and uh, love talking to you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 